Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Last week, as you'll remember, Will Robinson slipped away from the spaceship to try to repair the chariot, unaware that the renegade robot, programmed to obey only Dr. Smith's voice orders, was loose in the area. Guess it was wrong. Everybody thought I could fix it. Boy, it's cold. I gotta get back to the ship. What? Phase one, when unessential personnel are found alone, destroy. Welcome back, folks, for episode four of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. I'm Lane. And I'm Kurt. Kurt, today we're talking about the fourth episode of Lost in Space titled, There Were Giants in the Earth. My favorite. <laughs> Your favorite. Yeah, I've been waiting for the Cyclops all this time. When I was a kid, you know, I saw the model with the Cyclops, and I kept waiting for that episode, totally unaware that it had already passed me by. So, you know, I basically watched three seasons of Lost in Space for the early episode that I was never going to see again for many, many years till it finally made reruns. Well, there's a lot to love about this one. I was thinking when I was watching it, it reminded me of a combination of uh, Indiana Jones and one of those 1950s sci-fi giant bug movies except instead of a giant ant we get a giant well a giant uh. yeah yeah it reminded me of jason and the argonauts i mean i you know i love that movie too and oh absolutely it, absolutely and uh just like the last episode this one takes most of the dramatic scenes from the unaired pilot uh, no place to hide and again that explains why the script has smith left back at the jupiter 2 while the family leaves to escape a coming deadly drop in the climate, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let me give you just a few quick production notes before we begin reviewing the episode properly. The writer for this script was a, a guy named Carrie Wilbur, the story by Shimon Winselberg. The director is a guy named Leo Penn, and the last name Penn should be familiar to you because that's actually Sean Penn's father, famous uh, actor. Small world. little small world out there in Hollywood, I guess. Uh, the uh, f- episode was filmed from the 23rd through the 27th of August, 1965. Six days. Now, that sounds really good based on the film schedule of the previous episodes, except because this show used so much of the footage that was filmed for the unaired pilot, Penn was actually asked to film this episode in five days, and he went over by one day of the allotted schedule. So Erwin Allen was done giving directors second chances. This would be Penn's one and only effort for Lost in Space. 
The episode aired on Wednesday, October 6, 1965. And again, no summer repeats. And uh, there's a note here that says CBS was choosing not to repeat any of these early episodes where Smith and the robot were portrayed as deadly threats to the family. A little background, just a little bit on Kerry Wilbur. He's kind of an interesting guy. He was 49 years old when he wrote the script. He's got a lot of credits if you look him up in IMBD. Daniel Boone, The Virginian, Rawhide, The Untouchables. He did an episode of Time Tunnel. Seven episodes of Lost in Space, but in the sci-fi TV world, he's best known for later writing a classic episode of the original Star Trek series titled The Space Seed. Do you remember who was the... Yeah. Uh, Ricardo yeah. Montalban. Yes, the con. I will seek you, Kirk, to the ends of hell. <laughs> yeah, so that's pretty cool. That guy wrote this episode. All the regular characters uh, are featured. There are no guest stars on this episode. So, well, that does it for that. Let's get into the uh, plot. Act one, we have the opening. It's a shorter opening. We're getting shorter and shorter, only two minutes and 20 seconds if you're counting. And, of course, it starts off with the narrator. He picks us up from last week where we'd left off. Will Robinson had slipped out to try and repair the disabled chariot when the robot who's out prowling around finds him and following Smith's orders to eliminate any non-essential Robinsons, he's creeping towards Will Robinson with his menacing electrified claws. And he makes it very clear that his uh, it's a seek-and-destroy mission. He basically says it. That's a part that almost doesn't make sense. It's sort of like, you know, you better run, boy. But he doesn't say that. You know, it's like, destroy, destroy. He repeats the orders that he was given, which is a little odd because Will never tattles on that and says, oh, by the way, when he was coming towards me, he was threatening to kill me. And it sounded like he was repeating orders that were given to him to destroy all non-essential personnel. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, th- this thing basically starts off with like that two minutes is really just a repeat of the the last two minutes of the last week's episode yeah but it's so good it doesn't bother you at all because you like to see it again no it's 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 pretty much the the repeat of the the end of the last episode there is one little cutaway back to the jupiter 2 where uh john and and maureen are worried because they can't find will and and John turns to uh, Smith and he sort of dresses him down about his mismanagement of the robot. And then you hear a, a distress call over the intercom from Will. So they all rush out to rescue Will. And arriving at the scene, they see that Will has already gone back into his famous Dr. Smith impersonation as in instructing the robot to perform a routine check. Get Smith. Tell him you'll put him back in that deep freeze if he doesn't get out here and stop this. King's Pawn to King's Five. Queen's Knight to King's Bishop Two. Will! Don't distract him. He knows what he's doing. Queen's Bishop to King's Knight Four. Queen's Bishop to King's Knight Four. It's worth mentioning that the robot actually does some good acting in this this scene, okay? I don't know that they directed him to do this, but when Maureen Robinson is calling out to Will, you know, to basically she she's freaking out that he's in danger. Uh, he says, no, he knows what he's doing, dear. And <laughs> at that moment, the robot turns halfway to face her, and uh, and and then, you know, the Will gets him to turn back to Will. So it, it sort of looks like, you know, 
this robot's about to strike uh, both the parents with lightning bolts if they're not careful. It's a, it's a real threatening move. And, you know, if you've ever dealt with, like, animals and you distract them when they're, when they're upset and they're agitated, they do this sort of thing where, you know, they're confused. And in that moment of confusion, that's when the, they're the most dangerous. You know, uh, you're distracting a, a bear from its uh, uh, cubs or something like that, and it's like they're looking in two places at once, and they're, you just have this feeling that something's about to erupt. And, and Will keeps that, that calm Mm. voice and says you know queen to bishop three or whatever he says and then it gets the robot back to back to normal but uh, then as you say it cuts back to the jupiter two and we've got this almost comic element which is something that's sort of interesting when you're you have juxtaposition of horror right next to a comedy scene because we know that will can be fried at any moment and now we're back there and we're watching this this funny dialogue occurring a very funny dialogue occurring between don and dr smith you know <laughs> Ah, Major West, just in time to test a culinary marvel. The crepe Suzette Henri Carpentier de Paris, which I learned at the feet of the master. Get outside and stop that tin monster, or I'll wring your neck. Threaten violence, will you? Stand back, sir, or I'll drum on your noggin until it rings like the Canterbury Chimes. I surrender. All right, now get out and make the robot stop. But of course, my dear fellow, of course. One false move. And, <laughs> and, and Don makes another threatening move, you know, to go towards his neck or something. And Smith, at that point, takes the giant spoon that he's been stirring the soup with. <laughs> And he puts it across his, his arm and says, I surrender, sir. Yes. As if he's turning his sword over. It was great. It, yes. was, <laughs> it was just like it was just like Lee at Appar- uh, just surrendering his sword to, to General Grant. You know, it right. was like if there's one guy who has no honor at all, it's Smith. Yeah, it's great. It's a great little scene. I mean, you're right. It's a juxtaposition of, of tension and horror out at the chariot and then a, a, almost a comedic scene back at the Jupiter, too. But uh we're definitely seeing some some transition in Smith's character, but he arrives back on the scene where uh, Will is still playing chess, verbal chess with the robot, and of course he goes right into his act of my congratulations, Professor. You've raised quite a smart boy. No one's having any of the compliments. They're just all about hey, get the power pack out of the robot, which he does, and then of course everybody turns their attention to Smith, and Maureen's quite upset with him actually. She's yes, like, this take is your- the only time when she really you know snatches the boy away from get your hands off him she says right but my dear i had nothing to do with it i I you had my word you have my word exactly right but nobody seems entirely convinced so that whole dilemma is ended and then next we have we cut to a scene and by the way i'll just mention this this episode it really i noticed it it you don't linger on any one particular scene for very long it's a it's a whole series of short scenes that are tied together I mean, maybe the other episodes uh, were were a little bit different because of the the storyline, but this one was kind of interesting. I didn't feel like it was too erratic, but we're jumping next back to the Jupiter 2, and some time has passed, and John is briefing the crew that because they're going to be there for a while, they need to turn their campsite into like a self-sufficient community, which of course will demand a lot of work from everyone, including Smith, who gives a... <laughs> 
<laughs> Great little look. <laughs> I pledge you my utmost cooperation. Of course. And, uh, of course, all Will can think about is the robot. Now, the robot that just tried to kill him, but all he wants to know is how, how can they get the robot working again? He's just, uh, I think he's already taken a shine to the robot. Yeah, I need to really help him finish whatever that last mission was that he was saying. I can't remember to tell anybody what it was. It was destroy something, but it'll come back to me. Yeah, but of course he's told, hey, leave that robot alone. Don't even mess with him. We, we'll get to that later. But uh, then the next sequence was really funny to me. I, <laughs> this was classic Dr. Smith. We have a whole series of vignettes focused, as, and we're following Smith through the, camp, through the Jupiter 2 to the campsite as he drops in on different groups doing things. Uh, John and Don are trying to, to set the force field up. Judy and Penny are in the garden. Yeah. Smith, can you give us a hand with this? This heavy fa- <laughs> so sorry, old man. I promised to help Miss Judy in the garden, but carry on. <laughs> carry on, old man. And he moves on, and then, you know, he stops. What is it? He goes by um, Judy and Penny, and uh, oh, dear me, did I miss everything? <laughs> is there- oh, no, there's still something to do over there. Oh, so there is. <laughs> so there is. It- he decides to help. Uh, by ignoring the advice not to use any of the seeds in the native soil since it hasn't been properly tested and says, nonsense, this is just fine as Mississippi loam. Don said it wasn't safe to use any of the native soil. Ridiculous. However, I will take a little sample of this to the lab for a soil analysis. Meanwhile, my dear, you carry on with your planting. Uh, By the way, what are you setting out? Potatoes, peas, carrots, tomatoes, squash, and corn. And little green onions, my dear? Oh, yes, indeed. Plenty of little green onions. Yes. Carry on. Soil analysis. Well, anyway, he's a good cook. Sure he is. Oh, well, I just love the fact that, you know, they, they mentioned to him all the food that they're going to be growing there. And, of course, he's got the best advice of all. Oh, you need little green onions. You are doing little green onions, aren't you? <laughs> I, if we didn't call this Alpha Control, we should have called it Little Green Onions. <laughs> that, that'd be the alternate title. That would be. I loved, by the way, the hydroponic garden. I was talking, my wife said, those look like uh, doormats that they're planting, <laughs> planting those Either seeds Either doormats or, or air, air, uh, air handler <laughs> screens. <laughs> <laughs> There's absolutely no soil in them at all, and the seeds are just resting on top of them. Right, and, and the other funny thing was, like I said, he's he's looking down at the soil and he's running his fingers through it, and he says, "Why, well, this is just the finest of of, of soil, so rich." And and every and the, I think maybe it was Judy said, "Looks like sand to me," which of course that's what it was. <laughs> Yeah. with sand, but he plants the seeds in there anyway, and that's left to linger, and we're sure that's going to come back. But anyway. Yeah, because if you haven't noticed by now, every time Will makes a mistake, it always ends up, you know, practically saving the family. You know, like, uh, I, I shouldn't have taken the laser pistol, but it saved the day, or I shouldn't have done this, but, you know, it actually fixed the Jupiter too, or whatever. But every time Smith does something he's not supposed to do, it's going to boomerang back and almost kill everybody. <laughs> so these guys are like the yin and yang of disobedience. You know? Certainly are. Well, speaking of Will, Dr. Smith decides, I've got to take a sample of this soil that I've just collected back for analysis, and that he's heading back into the Jupiter 2, and he passes young Will doing an electronic repair job. And of course, he needs help too. But of course, Dr. Smith says, 
Oh, my dear boy. I would be doing you a disservice if I offered you any assistance. <laughs> Little setbacks are good for the young. Besides, I have an important experiment to perform in the lab. <laughs> and you, you have to love. If, if nothing, I think the elevator deserves you know, some sort of starring role because the way that it lowers and lifts uh, Smith into the lower chambers of the Jupiter II is always a grand entry for him. Yeah. And he always just looks like the cat that ate the canary when he comes down that lift. And of course, he's carrying that little sample and he looks diabolically around to make sure no one's looking as he tosses it into the waste disposal. Well, he has and experience he, with that waste disposal shoot, as we recall from the first oh, episode. Yes. <laughs> yes, that's a good friend of his. And the moment uh, he can't wait to take the, the coffee and put to his lips, the very moment he takes that first sip... <laughs> That's when Marine walks in. Dr. Smith, what are you doing here? Oh, dear. <laughs> but he still keeps that, that fake smile. That, and it's so obviously a fake smile. That's how you can really know the guy can act. He can act like he's acting when he wants to act like he's acting. And it, he looks so phony baloney. But it's like, he's glad to see Marine. Oh, no, he's not. But he's acting like he is. And he goes, There's, there are limits to what mere bone and sinew can endure, madam. <laughs> and then he takes credit for doing all the things he avoided doing. <laughs> yes, first I helped with the force field, my technical expertise, don't you know? And then I helped with the garden. Oh, it was such arduous work. <laughs> and she's like looking at him from the side of her eyes, you know. It's like, uh-huh. No one's buying his stuff now. I mean, it's sort of like we, they all have his number. Exactly. And the interesting thing about this and what really not only is this a great transition scene for Dr. Smith, because now, you know, all the way up to this point, he's somebody that we're scared of. But this is as far as I know, it's the first time that we're really getting a a almost long sequence of comedy music associated with Dr. Smith. So even if he wasn't saying all these funny things, you're starting to feel relaxed around him because it's, you know, it's almost like little rascals music playing in the background, right? right. you know, and it's sort of like, it's endearing, you know, you, you, you're not admiring him. You dislike him, but it's sort of like, okay, this is kind of childish hijinks that he's playing. You well, know. sure, and we're getting another aspect of his character. I mean, we know he was devious before, and we know he was a uh, he he was uh, uh, greedy or self centered, and now we're seeing that he's also uh, allergic to to work. So that's another aspect of his character <laughs> that will come back again and again. And he's quite clever in his uh, methods of avoiding it and making everyone feel like, <laughs> like he would he would have made a great government employee. <laughs> Uh, oh, I'd love to lift that, but my back, you understand. <laughs> Is it time for my coffee break? Oh, goody. <laughs> I really wanted to help. Oh, dear. It's 11.45. Uh, well, now the next scene should have made you smile because we cut away. They're back outside. and they, John and Don have finally gotten that, wait for it, the force field, force field up and running. And they do a little demonstration. How'd you like that scene? I did. But, you know, I, I said before that this was kind of new to television audiences, the force field, because I couldn't remember any TV show that had it before. I mean, there were no other science fiction uh, mainstream shows that were uh, for an adult audience. It's, uh, Lost in Space was the first. But I did think of a, a movie in which they undoubtedly, I mean, it had almost universal appeal. Hold the applause. Terrible pun. But it was uh, Forbidden Planet. Forbidden Planet had a force field, and, and we know they saw that because they hired the guy who did Ruby the Robot, you know, to do right. Austin Space Robot. So right. that had a big influence on the series, and I'm sure that that played a big part in this force field. But when Forbidden Planet, whenever they turn on the force field, it kind of lights up the air 
where it's supposed to uh, kick in. They don't do that with, with Lost in Space. I guess they figured it, it would add too much money over time. So they place Don on the other side of the force field, and he does what he kind of did with the... Uh, they, they sort of insinuate exactly where the force field is with the pyrotex, which is you know kind of a cheap way of doing it. He throws a rock, and it blows up. And then... He aims a laser at the family. Yeah, <laughs> at the family. I'm going to test it this way. I sure hope it works. I hope it works because if it doesn't, we'll have to go back to the drawing board. Uh, but you know, you would have you would have made up for that 200 pounds of extra weight for Doctor Smith, I guess, and then some. Uh, but it, it works. <laughs> Thank God. You know, if you'd just been on the other, if you'd stayed on the inside, you could have shot on the outside. But remind me never to have him test, you know, a, a firearm around me uh, with or without the force field. I couldn't believe that he turned right towards the family and shot it. But yeah, yeah, that was a good. You could you could have you could have shot anywhere in at the Jupiter too. I mean, you know, it, the force field does surround the entire ship supposedly, uh, but you know, I guess for uh, it, it was a good effect and 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 it works. Oh, it works. Yeah. So again, we're going quickly here from scene to scene. So the next morning, uh, John and Don are heading out to go fix the chariot, and of course, there's little Will waiting for them as. Goodbye, darling. Bye-bye. When will you be back? Well, it shouldn't take more than a couple of hours to fix a chariot and get back. Well, you're in charge, and I want you to take good care of your mother and your sisters. Yes, sir. But, Dad, about the robot, just... I want you to leave that robot alone. That's an order, understand? But, Dad... That's it, William. Yes, sir. He pop, they pop out. Will asks again about the robot. Can't we fix the robot? But he's quickly shut down by John, and he says, leave it alone. And he even calls him William, which I think is the only time I remember John calling. Usually it's Dr. Smith using his full name, but uh, apparently that's the, the signal he knows to stop arguing about it. Not that that's going to prevent him from disobeying again, but uh, he's left with uh, no uncertain terms that he's supposed to leave the robot alone. Which, of course, means that he won't leave the robot alone. But Of course, we know that. Another scene next, we go to Judy comes running uh, back in and says, something terrible has been happening in the garden. They go running out to the garden, and lo and behold, all those little seeds, we were warned, have turned to giant pea, <laughs> giant pea pods. Which would be fine as doctors from Doctor Smith's perspective because he's like, oh, this this pea pod will provide us with nutritious food for months. Uh, unfortunately, he pulls out a pocket <laughs> pocket knife and proceeds to to slice one open delicately, and uh, unfortunately, it's not what he expected. Oh yeah, all sorts of arm, it's alien type <laughs> arms reach out and start grabbing at people, and of course the the girls all scream, and I think Smith. Will- screams the loudest of them all oh yes he he definitely screams the loudest but will is right there quick draw mcgraw will is right there uh hiding behind a rock with a laser pistol and shoots it and destroys it and saves the day and then i was kind of interested will kind of this was seemed a little bit out of character for him i don't know if you Felt yeah, no, this I way felt the too. same thing. I he, felt he, like, you know, you're, not only does he dress down Dr. Smith, I mean, he basically blames him for almost killing his family. And right. So many words. It's like, where were you? You know, why Why weren't you doing anything? Oh, well, I would have done it. I would have protected him. All that would be necessary. Yeah. And, of course, none of them believe it at that time. But it gets so bad that even Marine says, okay, well, that's enough. Right. You know? I mean, it was. It felt. It felt very awkward at that point. But. Oh well, as the uh, as the act closes, we watch John and Don as they're driving the chariot 
uh, back to the ship after they've gotten it repaired, and they roll over some particularly rough terrain that the camera reveals to be some giant footprints. That was some great foreboding, I thought. You know, they didn't hit you over the head with it. They just pull the camera back, and you see the big footprints. You know, I don't remember those rough spots before. Yeah, whoa. (laughs) Yes. Well, next we go into the uh, second act. We open with John. He's in the laboratory peering over a microscope, looking at the remains from the pea pod, the giant pea pod in the soil under a microscope. And he explains to Don and with Dr. Smith hovering around that there's some weird sort of alien bacteria or microscopic life that has the potential to grow things to enormous size, which is, of course, foreshadowing great danger for uh, the Robinson family down the road. Yeah, and am I mistaken, but does he also say, well, there's also the possibility that it's sort of a plant-animal blend? That's right. He says it's it's neither plant nor animal. It's some kind of a combination. You're right. I think that's exactly what he says. At that point, you know, when they, they come back a few moments later and say, we found a way to domesticate the plants here. You know, it's sort of like, <laughs> <laughs> do the vegetarians on board know that they're also eating meat when they do this? I mean... <laughs> This gets a little bit spooky. If you've ever seen the invasion of the, the body snatchers, I'm not sure you'd want to eat that food after you saw those giant pods growing, uh, which look just like the pods from Invasion of the Body Snatchers, just saying. Oh, yeah. Uh, so. uh, they were huge, yeah. So next we go to a scene. Uh, Will is in his, uh, his polka dot pajamas in the middle of the night, and he decides he just can't sleep because he, he's thinking about that poor robot, and he... He just knows he can fix that robot, so he decides to get up, uh, goes outside, and starts working on the robot. And he's even having a little conversation. To, the boy likes to talk to himself, I noticed, and says, boy, I, I, I think Dad's going to really be happy when I fix, <laughs> fix this <laughs> robot. Of course, what if it doesn't work? Well, that'd be bad. Yeah, it'd be real bad if he tried to kill me again, but let's not think about that. <laughs> Dad won't mind. I'll save the day. I always do. <laughs> exactly. So he, he does manage to get the, the robot activated again, and, and uh, the robot's uh, sitting there, and then they hear a strange uh, animal noise. And the robot decides to go off and looking for it, and, and Will's like, come back, come back. Uh, not what he had in mind. The robot- but you notice, you notice that Will doesn't say any of that while the robot says, first must turn off force field. And there's like this, you know, 15-second sequence where he's fumbling around with the force field and everything, and Will doesn't have a line, so he remains silent. And only after the force field is turned off, and he's saying, you know, must go investigate sound. You know, come on, you know, if you're going to try to dissuade him, now's the time to do it. But he waits until the force field's turned off, and he's basically leaving camp. And then Will again says, no, come back here. <laughs> yeah, and of course, that way, that's he's he's yelling loud enough to wake up his dad, and his dad comes running out there and, again, reads him the riot act. I think this is like lecture number three for, the, <laughs> for this episode, and I'm sure they're not done yet, but uh, he— you know, Will says, well, I'll go after him if you want. No, yeah. Oh, okay, no, you do that. You go after him, and I'll stay here. <laughs> no. Yeah. no, that's not happening. And, of course, it's supposedly really, really cold at night, but I don't even think he's wearing a parka out there now. No. If I recall. No, yeah. it's not. Oh, well. But it is worth noting, too, that Will really isn't scared of the robot at all at this point. It's almost like he's completely discarded the fact that the robot tried to kill him at the beginning of this episode. But So the mm-hmm. robot's... Robot's making a transition, and and uh, Will's still a little bit disobedient. But you know what? I mean, I, I, I love finding the little continuity, continuity errors and the things that don't make sense and everything. But giving the devil his due, 
you're the little kid on board. You don't have any other friends. I mean, you know, big sisters are not considered friends normally. And uh, for little boys, I mean, they, they tend to be very nice to the little boys in their family, but the little boys don't seem to care very much for the big sisters. <laughs> so, you know, it's totally understandable that he's basically willing to risk his life to have this robot buddy. <laughs> yeah, he wants a buddy. You're exactly right. He wants he wants a pal. And of course, the there's no one else around. So uh, the robot, uh, the robot eventually will uh, will fill that role. So and he mentions that his his specialty is electronics. So he apparently feels that he can get this robot to be his friend. And as right. we'll see, he does. Absolutely. So the next uh, scene, we have a touching scene with uh, Will and and John. Uh, John's kind of giving him a heart to heart. It's a little bit of a lecture, but he's 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 being a good dad, I think. Here and he tells him, you know, you got to understand, he needs to follow instructions. And and uh, Will seems to say, yes, Dad, I will. But uh, uh, you know, we we don't really truly believe him. If <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it almost seems like this is one of those little efforts to educate the audience and how they should treat kids. You, you probably think, you know, the Dr. Spock probably wrote this scene. You want to sit down and talk to them. You don't want to spank them or anything. You don't want to raise your, your voice too much. Of course, everybody back at home is watching this and saying, look, buddy, you've had these discussions with him three times already, and he keeps risking his life. Right. But anyway, you know, you have to admire uh, Robinson for keeping this cool. Oh, he, he does. He he does, and, and it's a it's a nice little scene, and it leads us to the next part where we see the robot has come back from his long journey, and he's kind of in a in a state of mental breakdown. He's he's sort of uh, uh, lumbering about. His arms are flipping around and everything. And uh, Don says it looks like he's flipped his lid. And yeah, he's does not so- compute. Humanoid, Don- not sixteen meters high, does not compute. So whatever he's seen, it just doesn't uh, it doesn't compute, as you say, and and uh, they're all sort of scratching their heads. Well, what's what's going on with the robot? So so there's a little bit of foreboding there, but I kind of like the fact that he mentions specifically 16 meters high. You get it? We're in the future. We're not right. going with feet and inches anymore. This is science, folks. Metric system. Yep. Yeah, and so the next scene uh, we're moving quickly here is John's back to his. His diary writing, and uh, it, I love it, these scenes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The music's always very, very sappy, and, right. and just to make sure that the sappiness level reaches a, a real crescendo this time, we have his wife holding on to him while he while he writes right. this stuff. You know, I, they're kind of hugging. The cross pen set, which I love. I got to look for that. I, I think I got that. Um, Anyway, we learn from the diary entry, the narration there, that, uh, that they've, they've learned how to plant things, but the plants are starting to die off mysteriously, perhaps due to an early frost. So that leads John and Don decide they need to go up to the weather station and check out and see if there's any, uh, any uh, inclement weather heading their way. When they get up he there, also it's he also mentioned something about they're, they're starting to not only domesticate the plants, but a few of the ostrich-type animals. Did you hear that? I did, and I don't know if you noticed it or not, but they're actually, in some of the scenes, you can see in the background, there's a there's actually a pen, and they have some ostriches in the pen. Did you, did you happen to see that? No, I didn't. Yes. They're, in a later scene, you can see them quite clearly, uh, and they're in a little pen, and they, they, they don't show them close up, but they looks like they've almost got some, like, uh, 
feathers like the peacock feathers tied to their to the tops okay. of their heads and everything yeah to make I, w- I was gonna say they always have to have something that's a little bit you know crazy on them a little in order bit to different well uh-huh. the background story on that is those those ostriches were featured prominently and again we're, they're using a lot of footage from the uh, unaired pilot they were featured mm-hmm. prominently in the pilot and they didn't make it past the pilot because the ostriches proved to be such a hassle on the set. They kept spitting and kicking and biting. <laughs> I was going to say, do you know how dangerous ostriches are? They are mean. And, you know, people didn't really, when you grew up, you didn't believe it because you saw them in the movie Swiss Family Robinson, and they're actually riding the ostriches. You that's remember that true. Scene? Oh, and that's another tie-in. I forgot that completely. Exactly. So, you know, we were kind of raised to think of ostriches as stupid and innocent, and if you don't want to see what's going on, you bury your head in the sand. But then, you know, you fast forward 2000, year 2000, and science kind of comes to this new conclusion that the dinosaurs uh, have evolved into birds, and a Probably the most obvious example of that are the ostriches, which uh, are, are the closest thing we have now of velociraptors. I mean, those things have got ferocious claws, and if they want to take you out, I mean, they can they can rip your your stomach right open and your guts will spill out. Right. And uh, you know, we see them in the zoos, and we've got the bars between them, but you see them out in the, in Africa as a native or something like that, and you know the you're going to try to kill them, but you're also going to do it realizing that these guys can, can kill you too, because they can, and they're mean. And I've, I've seen them, you know, uh, get angry at people on the other side of the bars and, you know, try to peck at all this stuff like that. It's sort of like, don't get too close. Well, I remember in the book, Billy Mooby said he hated them because they were absolutely, just as you said, they were absolutely mean, and they they seemed to always pick on him for some reason. So <laughs> that was the reason they didn't make it. But, yeah, if you if you rewatch the episode, this is the last time you'll see him in Lost in Space. They're off, they're off in the background. Um, and, uh, yeah, they didn't make well, it. So. The moment they leave camp, and we're going to be getting that scene soon, but they're saying this terrible freeze is coming. Uh, is it just me? Isn't that going to, like, kill all the animals, you know, the like the ostrich left in the pen? <laughs> I think they must have eaten them all by that point because the, the pen is completely empty when they hop in the chariot and head ah, out of town. Okay. <laughs> well, at least they took care of that. I wish the turtle could have the same uh, care in his demise, but no, they just leave him to freeze to death. But yes. Carry on, sir. <laughs> carry on. So John and Don go up. Uh, to check on the weather station. I like this whole scene. They were like climbing up into the upper hills and they're up there in that weather station, you know, take the, the, the plexiglass dome off and John's out there in the wind, you know, with their parkas on and he's writing down the figures and immediately, I mean, this was, this was really like a very convincing uh, acting job, job by uh, Guy Williams. He looks at that thing and he, he has this kind of look of shock on his face. Look at this thing. But the day after tomorrow, the temperature will drop 150 below zero. What do we do? We're going to have to head south, but fast. Abandon the spaceship? What if it's finally spotted by some passing rocket? They'll televise a picture. Back to Earth. Oh, yeah, that's great. A picture showing no signs of life, no survivors. Well, Don, I'd rather not be found at all if I had to be picked up by a pair of ice tongues. Come on, let's get out of here. You don't suppose we could just button up the hatches and stick it out inside the spaceship, do you? We'd freeze to death. Take my word for it. Even if we could insulate well enough, the solar batteries would never stand the drain. It's moving day, Major West. Wait a minute. There's one gauge I think we ought to check, just to see how much time we do have. 
I can't remember where the discussion go, carries on, but at some point they're talking about, well, we can't stay in the ship because it's going to be too cold. And it's sort of like, well, wait a minute. Okay, I, I'm not a scientist. I admit it. But from what I understand, there really isn't such a thing as coldness. There's only the absence of heat, okay? And you can't really get any colder than the vacuum of space, okay? So how right. can a planet be colder than space, you know? Right. If it can make it through space, the spaceship <laughs> should be a pretty good place to stay, it seems to be. Exactly, yeah. But well, maybe that maybe this is the, the same people who had the burning comet, you know. But, <laughs> exactly. But, you know, I mean, I still like it. I, I, I don't mean to make it sound like, you know, this spoiled it for I could tell you in the 1960s, none of this occurred to me. <laughs> oh, like, no. It, oh, my it did, God. It didn't Except occur to anyone. We got to head south, you know. And yeah. uh, uh, John had some line in there that I thought was really good, something to the effect, well, I'd, I'd rather be f- uh, not found at all than be found with a pair of ice tongs or something yeah, like that. That was great. <laughs> Some of these throwaway lines are are pretty funny, you know. But yeah. he, he delivers it with such a straight face, you know. It's not. He, 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 it kind of just kind of makes you go, oh, okay, you know. You don't. It's not breakout laughter type thing, and there's no like whack whack whack. It's played just the right way it should be. Exactly. And Don and Don gives in, and says, yeah, I guess you're right. And so he says, but wait a minute, let's uh, let's go check another sensor I've got around the corner here just to see exactly how much time we got. And they turn around the corner, and of course, <laughs> the sensor's completely smashed. He looks down, what's this? And then they, I love this. This was a great job of directing. The camera sort of pans up, and you see this whole field of footprints, giant mm-hmm. footprints. Yeah. <laughs> and they sort of sit there in disbelief, and this is, can't be an... Uh, Yes, uh, yes, it is. Uh, you, not a, not a man, <laughs> a giant. <laughs> yeah, and you know, uh, Don seems the least capable of believing it, and and that's what sells it. You know, because I mean, anytime somebody says this can't be happening in a movie, you know, you you would stop and think, well, you're right, it can't be happening because it's a movie. But it, they have to say that because if they don't say it, if they just buy it, it makes us say, wait a minute, they just accepted that too easily, but. You know, you see these giant footprints and even smash your instruments, you know, as hard as it is to accept it, you're going to, you'd be crazy not to believe it. And and the best part about it is they have no idea, just because you see the footprints, you still don't know what the, the giant is. I right. mean, you don't know if it's the Jolly Green Giant, you don't know if it's Cthulhu, you don't know. And that, that adds to the sense of just sheer dread. Yes, absolutely. And so they say, well, let's get out of here. And, and they turn around, and finally we get the grand reveal. Let's go. I don't want to leave the family alone a second longer than necessary. I don't believe it. Neither do I. Let's get out of here. giant cyclops and this was a great scene too because it's sort of the cameras down low and it pans up and you see this this huge gigantic uh, uh beast uh standing above them and i thought and the the music was great too this is one of my favorite musical cues in lost in space i call it the alien monster theme it's used many many times but this is the first time i really remember it it's usually accompanied by a, a dr smith scream but in this case uh, no one's there to scream it's just john and don but uh it's really a great effect and that's uh that's another john williams piece of music here that really just sells that whole scene 
you can easily forget it's a man in a suit when they do that pan from the feet and going up because it really does make you think this is a giant. And uh, I don't know, they probably use a you know, slightly uh, wide angle lens to make it look even you know, bigger. And I mean, it's just like, wow. Uh, you feel like you're down there at his feet looking slowly up because remember he's so big your your eyes can't right. pan up that fast you know it's like right. holy cow and it's got this weird texture to it you know you mentioned that uh these plants can be part animal and the reverse could also be true the animals can be part plants and i think somewhere along the line you mentioned to me that this this costume was made out of a bunch of uh, husks from uh, palm trees and stuff that's right. That's right. The costume designer, uh, Paul Zastanevich, if I'm saying that right, uh, the story in the book was he was walking around the Fox uh, lot one day, and he noticed they were trimming all the palm trees, and they had all this palm bark sitting in little piles around the palm trees. And he, he took a look at it and said, wow, this is kind of interesting stuff. So he, he gathered up a bunch of it and took it back, and they, they treated it and uh, fireproofed it and everything, painted it, and sewed them onto the diver suit. And uh, they added a wig and a cool mask with that one scary eye and the Dracula fangs. And mm-hmm. sure enough, you've got a scary Cyclops, and it really, uh, it really sells in this, I think. Well, Erwin must have loved the fact that he was recycling. I mean, you know, Erwin loved to recycle. <laughs> but did you notice it wasn't, the way you described it just now, it sounded really, really cheesy. Okay, and it was really, really cheesy. But it did have a really cool special effect in which they only showed the slightest bit of it, which is another great thing uh, when they have a special effect. The eye yes. moved. The eye moves back and forth, doesn't it? Yes, it does. It's subtle, but... When you look at it, it, it really sells it. That's what I, I, I agree with you. That's cool. And they didn't overdo it. They didn't no. like, you know, keep showing it back and forth. It's sort of like, wait a minute, did that high just move? You know? I mean, yeah. I could never do that with one of my costumes. You know, Lord right. knows I tried when I was a kid. Uh, but, you know, that was, that was a nice touch. Well, it's interesting, too. Uh, uh, you know, I can never get enough like you of the Cyclops. And unfortunately, there were actually additional scenes filmed for the pilot that featured the Cyclops. One of the scenes, uh, John Robinson was flying around in the jetpack, which we haven't seen in this episode yet. And the Cyclops actually catches him in his hand. And John's ah. able to escape with the laser rifle. I would have loved to have seen uh, seen that scene, but now, unfortunately what, it didn't. So was that in the pilot? I mean, was that in the the pilot movie? Did you see that it was, in the pilot? It was in the it was in the pilot movie, um, but it was it didn't make it into the uh, broadcast episode. Okay, so, so we can we can still see it if we see the yes. pilot movie. Yes, that's okay. correct. Well, that's great to know because I mean that's a, a a great. But you know you can still see that photograph because one of the things we haven't mentioned is all the the collectible memorabilia that came out for this series. Uh, one of the ways that I knew about not only the model of the Cyclops, but when I go to school, somebody had a Lost in Space lunchbox. And the ah. Cyclops is a beautiful lunchbox. I mean, if I had, you know, if I could just have three lunchboxes from that era, Lost in Space and Outer Limits would be, you know, and probably Star Trek, but definitely Lost in Space and Outer Limits. That Lost in Space had a great lunchbox with the, <laughs> the Cyclops prominently uh, featured there. And uh, that was in there. And they also had a, a, a comic book that was out, and they had a, a set of trading cards from Tops. And uh, that had a bunch of Cyclops uh, photos in it, several of them. And one of them was uh, Professor Robinson caught in the Cyclops grasp. 
Now, I don't know how they did that effect. That's pretty cool. I mean, you know, you, you're you're superimposing, I guess, some tiny. Well, I, I didn't get to see the scene, so I don't know if it looked like a doll. It didn't look like a doll in the in the the trading card. I could tell you that. I have that trading card series, by the way. It's it's not a cheap one. It's like three hundred fifty <laughs> or five hundred dollars. It's a wonderful set, uh, but it you know it kind of takes a whole bunch of scenes from those first early episodes and concocts a story on the back for it, and it's very uh, uh, fun in that regard. Well, I could have used more, more, uh, more Cyclops uh, and less uh, turtles in this episode. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to be the turtles also, it. the turtles also in the card set. The ostriches don't make it, but the bloop does, and the turtle does, and definitely uh, the Cyclops. And so do the giant, uh, the the giant peas make it in the in that some sort of a growing plant does, yeah. a monstrous plant. Well, so John and Don are are basically being menaced by the. Uh, by the Cyclops, but we're back to the ship and Will is working on his uh, electronics still. The girls are picking fruit. Maureen is doing the laundry. I love this little bit because she's got essentially what I call the electronic Chinese uh, laundry mat, which is so funny. She throws the clothes from the hamper in this machine, waits a couple of minutes, and then pulls it back, the lid back open. And not only are the clothes cleaned, folded, but they're actually wrapped in cellophane for, yeah. <laughs> for you, which I think is a neat trick. I, I guess she wasn't listening to the part where Professor Robinson said, you know, we got to really watch our resources. The uh, first on my resource list would be, you know, save the plastic on the laundry, please. I mean, do you really need to go that far? And she has a look on her face like this is the best part of the day, you know, doing the laundry. <laughs> She's obviously loving this new machine. I guess that's probably what really sold her on taking this mission to Alpha Centauri in the first place. Hey, you get the laundry machine that actually folds your laundry and puts it in plastic. I mean, what's not to love? Okay, sign me up. I'm on board. <laughs> yeah, but but the the clothes basket looks like the same one we have. So apparently that technology hasn't advanced very far in 40 yeah. years or whatever. $10,000 $10, a pound to, to send something up on, on Skylab, and they still have the money in order to send a plastic clothes basket. <laughs> uh, it's That's all your, with love, though. Your government at work, yeah. <laughs> This is all with love, folks. Anyway, uh, this leads us to the part where this this is another great, great scene. Will is actually looking through his uh, uh, radio telescope. He says, hey, I got it fixed, Mom. And she looks through the telescope, and she goes, oh, my gosh. And Will's like, what is it? And he pu- puts the uh, reticle to his eye, looks out there, and what does he see? The giant cyclops chasing after his dad and Don, which is, <laughs> oh, that's a great bit. Yeah, you know, when you look through a telescope, I mean, you know, you always... <laughs> the radio telescope. The right, radio. <laughs> radio telescope. Instead of seeing something like you would see on Doppler, which is what, you know, most radio telescopes see, they see radio waves and they transmit it in some sort of graphic. This shows a perfect optic uh, vision of this giant cyclops. And of course, when they shoot the cyclops, he's not just, you know, rumbling around. He's always going a little bit slow-mo. Did you notice that? Yes, they, yes. That, that kind of makes him look more lumbering. So right. he's lumbering around, and you can't even see uh, uh, the Don or, or John. They're hiding out in the cave at that point. But they can still see that this guy's a giant. And Will says that, oh, cool, like it's a giant. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah, that giant's about to kill your, fa- your father, but don't 
And, of course, the girls are flummoxed. What are we going to do? But Will doesn't wait. He grabs a laser pistol and starts running out. They sort of, uh, Will, wait, stop. But yeah. Will's not to be stopped, of course, even though he was commanded to stay back and guard the women. So he heads up there. And this was kind of a cool bit, too. He's actually, like, almost looks like he's he's scaling or rock climbing or something to get up to them. And in the meantime... Don and John are, are in a cave, and the the the, the giants actually p- pulled a tree out of the ground, and he's trying to trying to uh, poke that tree into the cave to to force them to come out. And uh, Don gets the bright idea of <laughs> giving the giant a hot foot. I love that bit. <laughs> yeah, and Professor Robinson says, "No, you're just going to make him more angry." But of course, you know, sorry, Doc, and he throws it up there anyway. And sure enough, it. It pisses off the Cyclops even more. <laughs> Don's like, well, I guess that didn't work. And, he, and John says, well, at least we know he can feel pain. <laughs> yeah. Look at the bright side. And, right. and we, we're going to know you're going to feel pain, too, if he gets that giant piece of palm tree into your cave far enough. It's a great scene as he's uh, sticking that in there. Again, you know, Jason, the Argonauts. I mean, you're sitting there thinking, just a little farther. These guys are trapped. That that cave doesn't go in very far. Uh, so it, it is sufficiently scary. Oh yeah, the cinematography was very good on that. I mean, it was it was very convincing and it was it was dramatic. There was tension and excitement during that whole scene. Great and, music, wonderful oh, music, wonderful music. Yes, and Will finally gets into a position where he can take a shot with his laser uh, pistol, and the the that that was pretty cool too because the the scream of the giant was even kind of scary. I thought, and he mm-hmm. sort of he sort of grasps his chest and then he falls back, and then there's just giant. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I love it when the feet come up, and you see these yeah. are basically uh, Barney the dinosaur feet. You know, they look like giant <laughs> slippers with the claws added to them. But it's still, you know, there's a big crash, and it's all done in that just a little bit slow motion. You first really notice the slow motion when he pulls up that that tree, and right. the clods of dirt are thrown out. Because at first you don't notice it's slow motion. There's wind that's blowing the Cyclops' hair, and the wind's also blowing the smoke, but it seems like it's going at a normal rate of speed. But then you see the dirt flying from the from the, the palm tree, and you realize, oh, it's, it is slowed down a little bit. But it's cool. I mean, it's, it's it just adds to that nightmarish feel, you know, when things are a little slow motion as the adrenaline is racing through your brain. And you can realize, you know, if this were happening to me, I mean... I, it is almost like those scenes in the horror movies where the person can't move. That would be like, you know, because <laughs> your, your eyes are not making sense of what they're seeing. And this thing right. is like, whatever this thing wants, is going to get, it's just this giant. How can it not get you? But uh, they managed to, to keep their wits about him and, and will saves them. He does. And, and of course uh, he finds his d- uh, dad and Don and they come running out and, and there's a happy reunion, but uh, no good deed goes unpunished because Will gets yet another lecture from John. But it's a short one and a sweet one, and they're yeah. all happy. And uh, and they go back, uh, heading off to get back to the spaceship. But, of course, we're left in no uncertain terms. That giant's going to be seen again because he's apparently just been stunned. He sort of brushes himself off and gets up and growls. And uh, we think we're going to see that giant again. Back at the ship... We see Dr. Smith is being informed by Dr. Robinson that, you know, the temperature is rapidly falling. And he says, I have no intention of leaving the safety and comfort of the Jupiter 2. Leave the ship. Are you out of your collective minds? Here we have simple comforts, a more than adequate cuisine, ample protection from the perils of the planet. And you want me to leave? It's either that or freeze to death. 
My dear sir, Zachary Smith would rather freeze to death intact than provide a few morsels for some carnivorous giant. No, you do as you please. I shall stay here. It's your funeral, Smith. Just leave me a few necessities. I feel confident that I shall survive. We'll leave you all we can spare. Well, Don, let's see about getting underway. Good luck, Smith. You'll need it. You'll come back, never fear. And you'll find me here, snug as can be. You'll see. But he doesn't really look all that convinced as the as the scene ends. Yeah, he looks a little worried and uh but in keeping with his character, he's gotta make sure that he does a little bit of taunting there. And you keep wondering, how does this guy think that that's going to improve his relationship with these people? <laughs> if they do come back, you know, it's sort of like I told you so, you know he's gonna say that. You know, right. so it's sort of like I don't know. And and what what's he gonna do? I mean if you're stuck at that ship and the Robinsons are gone, you're going to die eventually. I mean, you know, right. you're not going to take it back. Right. You don't have a pilot. Yeah. Well, one of the interesting things I picked up on at the and this sort of closes out Act Two is at this point Smith has finally turned in his uh, Air Force jumpsuit for he's got a regular set of uh, space fatigues, the velour space fatigues, and uh, I took this as a subtle way of saying. Uh, that he's part of the family now, and we're going to be seeing a lot more of Smith, and sure enough, we will be. So Act 3, we open up with the Robinsons are packing up the chariot because the temperature is really dropping fast, and there's a cute little scene with Will and the robot saying goodbye, but the robot's sort of like uh, not catching on to Will. Uh, Will's, uh, you know, oh, I'm, I'm going to be sad to be without you, and uh, robot just says, giving him the old, uh, that does not compute sort of thing, and so Will teaches him some uh, sentiment, lessons in sentiment by pulling his power back. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, there's no time to spare, but guess what? Who's missing this time? It's Penny. And yep. I guess she she must have been jealous of all the attention Will was getting by being so disobedient. So John and Maureen have to go out searching for her when there's very little time to spare. And, of course, John is going to play the martyr again, and he orders Don to to leave without them if the, once the temperature gets down to minus 10 degrees. So this is setting up some more dramatic tension. Yeah, but she's got a good excuse. After all, she's trying to find the bloop. The bloop ran <laughs> off. So in order to make sure that she gets back in time, she's riding the turtle. <laughs> if you want to get somewhere fast, take a turtle. Take a turtle. How far could she get? I don't know, but it's got giant uh, thorns on it, so at least she's not going to fall off of it. Yeah, they got something to hold on to, some handlebars there. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was funny. Marine draws the short straw. She gets to search on foot while John gets to go by air. And this uh, this scene introduced another cool piece of technology, the rocket pack. And, uh, you know, eventually John does locate Penny, and uh, she and Debbie climb on the back of the uh, rocket pack, and they all return just in the nick of time before yeah. before Don was about to leave without them. And they leave uh, the turtle to die, a cold, icy <laughs> death, but, you know, nobody seems to think about the turtle. Forget the turtle. Now, is it just me, or did I—isn't did I, is, is, it funny how— uh, Penny doesn't seem to get any lecture at all from John, you know, for being... Well, uh, she's the girl. Busy. You know, the daddies have a special place in their heart for the girls, so that's understandable. Daddy's little girl, that's, that's true. That's right. 
And uh, I was just kind of surprised how willing Don was. Like, hey, he told me to go at 10 degrees. I, yeah, I got to do it. I, do you think I want to do this? You know, for a moment there, I thought, well, maybe, yeah, maybe you do want to do this. Now you've got, you know, there's no other men there at all. <laughs> no, he, 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 he does seem a little relieved when they show, you know, look up in the sky. It's a girl. It's a chimp. No, it's super spaceman. And then arrives, you know, uh, John. But do we ever see this power pack again? This jet, this jet thing again? The jet oh, pack? yeah. I was going to mention to that, that, that uh, jet pack, the rocket pack, uh, was actually, uh, not, that was not a special effect. I mean, there were some uh, special effect shot use, shots used with it, but it was an actual uh, Bell Aerospace rocket belt designed for the U.S. Army in 1960. And that very same rocket belt had been used in the James Bond movie Thunderball in 1964. The interesting thing about it is it only carried enough fuel to stay airborne for about 25 seconds. So they, wow. they shot a bunch of scenes of it flying around over Red Rock Canyon State Park. And uh, fortunately, just like with the Jupiter 2 crash sequence, they filmed it in color. So yes, they used that, uh, that footage several more times um, in the series uh, in later episodes and in later seasons. So oh, cool. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's very cool. So they finally shove off in the chariot, and they're going, uh, they're going on their way, and they turn a corner, and sure enough, blocking their way in that little valley, that little canyon there, is that mean old Cyclops once again. And this time, he's got a big giant boulder in his hands. Several of them. <laughs> I know. I mean, that's not a good sequence, but yeah. it's really cool when he throws the... The boulders down towards, and the way they're doing the over-the-shoulder shots, and the, yeah. and the boulders are falling down towards the chariot. Yeah, and you're I sitting there. That was cool. You're, you're looking over at shoulder, and you say, "Okay, there's no way he can miss a second time." I mean, <laughs> the chariot's right at his feet. You know, and all you have to do is let go of the boulder, and it's gonna hit. But he misses it a second time. I guess if you only have one eye, you don't have the stereophonic, right. you know, vision or something. <laughs> Damn, this one eye! If I only had two <laughs> eyes, I could hit him at least by the third boulder. <laughs> Depth perception is a problem, yeah. So Don Don's gonna shoot him from inside the chariot, but first he's gotta take off the plexiglass dome. And they're like, wait a minute, I thought lasers could shoot through transparent objects. But no no, I gotta mess with this damn dome. <laughs> like what what is you think that dome's gonna protect you from the boulder? Take the dome off, you know, stop putting it in front of you. I mean he right. keeps fiddling with this thing like it's a manhole cover, you know. Right. Wait, uh, it's just, it's gonna shield me. No, take it off. Put it back on. No, take it off again. Oh, it's very frustrating. But a great. The whole thing is, uh, you know, it is kind of false, uh, false tension. But it works because I mean that you're just so overwhelmed by it. And again, that over the shoulder shot. That the I don't know how they got the the chariot to look so small. I guess they used a little miniature chariot, you know, with tiny little dolls right. in it or whatever. Right. Because it was it, a miniature. It was a two foot model. That was the two foot mo- foot model they used there. But it was it was really cool. When again, I love the shot where Don, Don fires the uh, laser rifle at it, and the, again the giant sort of careens backwards and falls, and there's a cloud of dust rising up behind the hills when he lands and everything that was a great scene and then i loved this part where they they, they sort of all right let's keep going and they sort of drive past the they don't drive quickly past the giant because no. remember that giant got up before they sort of they sort of drive slowly by everybody's taking a good look then they actually pause right by the giant's uh, yeah head let's get a good look at that eye that's kind of interesting does anybody have any final last words to say for the cyclops and the, the chimpanzee applauds at that time you know? <laughs> I love that line. Oh, yeah, no, that great. was scary. It was scary because you see, you know, that really gives you the the perception of how large that 
that monster was because he's you're looking at him it's basically a revere uh, rear projection you know behind the chariot on the side but it's so close to the chariot you're sitting there going gosh his head is larger than the entire chariot right and, and the the somber uh look on the people's faces as they go by it's sort of like gee we right. could have just been killed then well it it won't be the last time we'll see the Cyclops, at least the Cyclops costume. I'm not going to give it way, away right now, but that that costume does appear later in later episodes and in later seasons of Lost in Space. Although you might not have recognized it as the Cyclops, but we'll just leave that alone for now. So they put on a different head, huh? They recycled everything uh, but the head. No, no. <laughs> okay, all right. They gave it two eyes. No, we're going to give it three eyes. We've never had a three eye monster before. They'll love it. And we'll put little peacock feathers on the top, too, because we didn't use those on our ostriches. Remember, we cut that seam. <laughs> Maybe they put some fins on it for Voyage oh, to the Bottom that, of the Sea. That's it. No, we'll keep one eye, but we'll have three eyes on the on the peacock feathers. Get it? <laughs> It'll be four eyes. All right. Well, anyway, they keep driving south, but sure enough, shortly after, thereafter, they need to stop for repairs because those boulders damaged the uh, chariot. So they pitch camp, and we got a, a nice little homey scene. Everybody's enjoying a campfire. Mom and Dad are cooking. Don's trying to repair the chariot, despite Judy distracting him, him with her charms. And uh, Penny is playing dress-up with the chip. And then Will is uh, singing and playing guitar around the campfire, which actually that wasn't even in the script. But uh, there was an interesting little note in the book. They said uh, Irwin Allen had noticed that uh, Billy Moomy was entertaining himself uh, practicing a guitar between uh, takes. And Irwin thought it was so good that he just on the spur of the moment said, hey, let's have you, uh, let's have you do, the, uh, do that uh, for the next scene. Cream sleeves uh, it was a good thing for Irwin, though, that the only song that Billy knew how to play at that point was Greensleeves, and since that was public domain, there would no, be no royalties charged for them to play the song, play the song in the show, which made him very happy. Oh yeah, no, that uh, Bill does a pretty good job, except that the last note he sings is uh, out of pitch. But uh, you can tell that he's actually playing the guitar. I mean, I was watching, thinking, did they just dub this? Was he like, because that's something that they do a lot in oh sure in movies. Yeah. You know, you just strum on this guitar, no one will know the difference. But you know, when you're changing chords, you expect to see the fingers change, and he's playing away, and he's doing a good job. But my favorite part is this stuff that's going on between Judy and Don. I mean, come oh, on. Yes. I mean, yeah. it's getting very touchy feely over there, and <laughs> and Penny sees it. Well, yes, and they make a point of that. Penny Penny makes a point of it. She talks to uh, her her mom and dad about it. Guess and, what I uh, saw? Yeah. Well, this is exactly the kind of stuff that the CBS censors did not want to have. So this they put the kibosh on this going forward. But I um, I do like this part because this is one of the few times that uh, I can remember the show explicitly mentions the po- probability that Don and Judy would wind up becoming a couple or whatever. I mean, it's always implied, but they s- almost specifically mention it here, which is oh, kind of a neat. Oh, more touch. than that. I mean, they kind of uh, he even he refers to well, considering the population implosion that's occurring here, we can't very well insist that she play the field. Yeah, well, that's exactly the the reason I'm sure that CBS said, "Hey, let's keep this uh, let's keep this implied and not explicit." So, sure. anyway, the next scene, the family is resuming their journey uh, in the chariot. They're heading south, but soon they encounter a ferocious, and I mean a ferocious uh, electrical storm. This thing is very violent. They have to seek shelter in a cave. 
and they pull into this cave and they decide to right away they get out and explore and I thought this was great because right away the mood changes and and what really sets the mood is that very very creepy music I don't know if uh, you recognize that but that's uh, that's music from the movie The Day the Earth Stood Still it was part of the Fox uh, music catalog by Bernard Herrmann and it it just before you even see anything you're just in a dark yeah that it's Herman. it's playing oh, in the background yep yes it's creepy as all get out and uh uh, the men get out, and uh, Don's lighting a, a torch, and right away John's like, "Get the flashlights! We need to save those torches for later." Yeah, we, I thought we, this... we, need, we need to save that for the next time we see the Cyclops. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was funny though, but they're passing out the laser pistols and the flashlights, and uh, the men get the the men get the weapons and the flashlights, and the women are just sort of left there to, <laughs> to be defended. So, yeah, it's not like they can hold a flashlight or anything. No, no. <laughs> But they start exploring, and they're going through. Basically, it's like a, a, a an ancient uh, an ancient ruin of some sort of ancient uh, civilization with all sorts of columns and um, interesting hieroglyph- hieroglyphics on the wall. Did you happen to see? If you look very closely, there's actually a picture of the Cyclops on one of those uh, hier- hieroglyphics. It's very. It's only there for a couple of seconds, but I don't know if you noticed that or not. Well, I saw some big figures. I didn't notice if it only had one eye. I was more uh, interested in the the very first arch they go underneath, and it looks like they have two giant dragon heads facing each mm. other. So yeah, that struck me as like, oh, here's another creature we haven't seen yet, these, these right. giant dragon creatures. Unless, well, of course, it's like a mythos uh, creature that doesn't really exist. Like, you know, dragons here on Earth. You might see pictures of them. That doesn't mean they were here, but... Well, I was looking at it, and it after a while, because they walk around in there for a good little bit, and it's creepy, it's dark, and they've got those columns and the dragon heads, like you say. The book said a lot of those uh, pieces were actually borrowed again. Yeah. <laughs> Erwin likes to borrow from the from the movie set of uh, the movie Cleopatra, ah. and uh, they looked they looked good though. But I mean, you're essentially going through, I think, more or less the same corridor several times with different angles and everything. But it's a lot more elaborate than some of the sets we'll see in later seasons and later episodes so it works okay i like the fact that uh they they were doused and i do mean doused with a very uh, abundant supply of spider webs so you know whenever i see that many spider webs on an alien planet i always get a little bit worried you know <laughs> where are the spiders that created these giant webs you know maybe yes. we shouldn't scatter out and send the children out because you know penny's gonna get lost looking for bloop which of course she does and uh you know she she's kind of that convenient bite-sized spider morsel-sized child so is will and you know they, they they're not worried about that at all but no in fact i don't think we see we never see any insects at all on this planet but we saw the no. vegetation we know that there's plants maybe the plants ate all the insects remember they're <laughs> they're animals well, there are plenty of webs around, that's for sure. And I love it when Will goes, you you women are always getting lost. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, finally, uh, uh, Will and Penny are exploring, and they both manage to get themselves trapped in a small chamber. And, and uh, they're, they're sort of t- getting their bearings in there, and the flashlight goes up, and there's an alien mummy's, uh, and, or did I, is that an alien mummy? I'm not sure which yeah. one that is. <laughs> alien Billy Mummy. Uh, th- this yeah. was one of the cheapest uh, props that they had. I, I was disappointed in that that mummy. But 
you know, it the, the lighting on it was pretty cool, even though it kind of looks like they just sort of threw that thing together. It wasn't particularly scary, but the lighting effects that they had for it made it kind of scary. Right. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you know, you could tell it didn't have a lot of wrinkles in its face, and it kind of just looked no. like a scarecrow of sorts. And maybe it wasn't even a body. Maybe it was just a giant doll. I mean, maybe it was supposed to be more like an idol or something. But it, it the the lighting and the spider webs and stuff gave it uh, when that flashlight runs across it. You know, it's a startle moment. Yeah. Well, of course, we have to remember uh, the original audience is watching this on very low res black and white television. So um, I'm sure I'm sure it looked better to those uh, 1960s TV viewers than it does to us. We can see every little detail, and you're right. It doesn't It doesn't quite hold up, but Penny sure thinks it's scary because she lets out a huge scream, and actually that scream was cut by the CBS censors as well, but uh, fortunately we get to see it because they added it back in on the uh, Blu-ray and the DVD. So I was going to say, maybe you know they were worried a too scary of a uh, mummy would you know get the, the censors all... Uh, tied up in a wad or something. So maybe they kind of downplayed it for that. Right. And if it's not bad enough that Will and Penny are trapped in that little chamber, Don and Judy arrive on the scene, and sure enough, (laughs) they're they're trying to get uh, Will and Penny out of there, and they wind up getting trapped in the same same little chamber. We've got a fine mess on our hands, and as if things couldn't get any worse, all of a sudden an earthquake breaks, (laughs) breaks out. So... We must be getting close to the end of the episode because uh, the, the four of them are trapped. John and Marine start racing around. They find out where they were, but they can't get that large stone to budge. So John breaks out his laser pistol and starts to use it as a uh, as a blowtorch or a, yeah. uh, to get try to get them out. And just like and, on the derelicts, whenever he turns it on, there's you don't see a beam. You just see the pyrotechs in between the rocks, you know, the sparklers or whatever going off. Right. But it works. And, and, you know, I thought that that, of all the scenes that we've uh, had the cliffhanger so far, this was kind of the least tension-filled one because, you know, you've already revealed, you know he's going to get in there with that laser pistol. And, you know, it's sort of like you know what the solution is going to be. But it's still, you know, uh, it's such an interesting place that they are. You want to tune in to see what else they find there even though you're not really worried that they're going to get rescued because they found the kids, they're behind the rock, and he's working on getting them out. Yeah, I guess the only thing that's adding a little bit of tension to I mean, it's maybe more than a little bit, is the fact that there's an earthquake and perhaps the whole thing could come collapsing in. And so there's a, there's a little bit of a time crunch involved in it. But you're right. I think compared to some of the other cliffhangers we had, it didn't seem quite as uh, threatening we're left in suspense, basically. Don, Judy, and the kids trapped in that alien tomb as the planet is quaking, threatening to bring everything down on their heads. And we're all wondering, uh, can they escape? Yes, they're probably going to escape because John's got that uh, laser. He's going to blow them out. But before we can find out, uh, sorry, kids, we're going to have to wait because the freeze frame comes in and warns us to stay tuned next week before we go to end credits for There Were Giants in the Earth. Can you imagine the audience at this point? They've had four episodes. So many things just happened in this episode. I mean, you had the giant cyclops. You had the lost city. You had the carnivorous plants. I mean, this is this has got a lot going on in one episode. Oh, it really does. I, You know, it really moved along fast. I think we mentioned before, there was a lot of little scenes, a little vignettes, but it moved from one thing to the other. And 
just like the last episode, there weren't a lot of points in this where I felt like there was a lot of padding going on, a lot of uh, slow parts. Maybe a little bit when they're wandering around in the in the ruins there in the cave and so forth. But I thought it was from start to finish. I thought it had a lot of I thought it had a lot of great scenes, and I love the footage of the Cyclops, of course, and the the jet pack. I mean, this this was a good episode. I thought from top to bottom. Yep. Yeah, and uh, you know when they're showing the lightning bolts around the chariot, it was it was like those lightning bolts were going everywhere except the chariot. You know, I mean they were they were literally <laughs> going around the chariot. You know, just like keeping a little bit of safe spot for it. It was almost like you know the god of thunder Thor was sending them into that cave. But uh, you know, not only was that effect adequate, but all the effects were were adequate if they weren't adequate they were actually very very good so uh there wasn't any parts that were that that drug it down you know it was just like it was always either good or really good and that's a good place to be for for any television uh especially uh when you're starting out a series and people must have just thought man this is gonna be the best series ever all the the serious science fiction people must have been really digging it at this time Sure. Well, if you had asked me uh, before I watched the episode, I would have probably said I could have used more Cyclops. And I still probably feel that way deep down. But Erwin, like any great showman, always leave them wanting more, I think is the the old showbiz slogan. I was going to say, you know, if you you want them wanting more. And that's that's exactly how I felt. All right. Good. So that wraps up this episode of Alpha Control. Join us again next time when we will be reviewing the fifth episode of Lost in Space titled The Hungry Sea. Until then, Kurt, take care, and we'll talk to you soon. Okay. See you then. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks, fellow galactic castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com, that's L-I-B-S-Y-N.com, or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week, same time same channel.